You're listening to a talk which is part of our Restore series. We hope this series will help people understand what it means to be a restorer and how this impacts our actions and attitudes when dealing with both the church and secular culture. For more information, other resources and media, please visit citychurchleads.net. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about being called, not employed, and that's our final, final part of our Restore series. So what I'm going to talk about is this, this thing we've called called, not employed, and I'm, I've been so looking forward to sharing this particular one with you because it's so key um, to a lot of things and how we do a lot of things. But in this final week, after hearing about how we're to reimagine or, be, or transform the world or, or trans- be transformed from within, how we're to connect with our communities, how we shouldn't let anything or anyone offend us, and how we need to engage with the world in which we live. This week I want to talk about vocations, jobs, the things that, that we do, and how do we bring this restoration theology uh, into this area of our lives. The question is going to be quite a few questions that just kind of want to get your, your mental juices flowing. Is how do you view your vocation? How do you view your vocation? And by vocation, I don't just mean the thing that you get paid to do, but obviously for a lot of us, that is the main thing. Good old Wikipedia, which I always turn to in times of need, gives this definition. And I'm really intrigued to find this definition of vocation. A vocation, or Latin vocateo, uh, a call or a summons, is a term for an occupation to which a person is specifically drawn or for which he or she is suited, trained or qualified. Though now often used in non-religious contexts, the meanings of the term originated in Christianity. The idea of vocation is central to the Christian belief that God has created each person with gifts and talents orientated towards specific purposes and a way of life. In the broadest sense, as stated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, love is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. More specifically, in the Orthodox and Catholic churches, this idea of vocation is especially associated with a divine call to service uh, to the church and humanity through particular vocational life commitments such as marriage, to a particular person, consecration as religious ordination to priestly ministry in the church, or even holy life as a single person. In the broader sense, Christian vocation includes the use of one's gifts in their profession, family life, church, and civic commitments for the sake of the greater common good. Wonderful definition given about vocation from Wikipedia. So another question, how do we connect God's calling on our lives with our vocation? How do we connect God's calling on our lives with our vocation? Some of you may look at vocation as something that you do to generate finances, to help you work out God's calling on your life. In other words, it pays the bills, it keeps you afloat, and basically it underwrites this other thing that God has called you to do. Or maybe, maybe you view vocation as the thing you spend a massive proportion of your week doing, other than sleeping, and that actually you think of it as a barrier 
to doing the thing that God has called you to do. I remember that when I worked for the Carphone Warehouse quite a few years ago now, I viewed that being part of the church, employed, paid and released from secular work was the only way I could work out the thing that God was calling me to do. And for a long time, I viewed working for Carphone as a major block to me working out my calling or our calling, myself and my wife. And when the time came that I was able to be released from secular work, there was a huge sense of relief, a massive sense of, right, now I can really knuckle down. Now we have the time. And in fact, there are plenty of folks who believe and for a long time I, I was one of these, that are a real calling, one that has any worth and that is in any way spiritual, is the call to be working for the church full time. And that anything outside of that just isn't as useful. Or as I said, it's either to either simply underwrite the real thing that God has got for them to do, or it's a great barrier to God's calling that needs to be got over. Some may even go so far as to say that the, the church leader or the pastor or evangelist and so on, that's where the real spirituality is at. And everything else just plays second fiddle to those truly spiritual callings. <laughs> and over the years, this has been enforced, and it has been enforced by what you hear from the front on a Sunday in particular. Church leaders saying, God said this to me, or that to me, or while in my fourth hour of prayer, an angel came. Or I, even, or I felt God say this to me. Now, while all this may be true and amazing, and it can and does have the effect of saying, at least subliminally, that unless you're released from other kinds of works or vocations, you'll never hear from God as well as I do or be as spiritual as I am. Being a full-time leader in the church is where it's at. And I have to say this now, before I go on and unpack any more, and state this very, very, very clearly, this couldn't be further from the truth. I'll say it again, this couldn't be further from the truth. Have we ever heard, or are we... Or do we hear enough folks saying, I feel called to be a banker or work in a coffee shop. Or I feel called to be an MP, a steel worker, a fisherman or journalist. Or even, I feel called to be a stay-at-home full-time mom or dad. Let's ask the question, and let's ask it often. What is your plan for us, God? What is your plan for us, God? Now, let's pretend, because I don't know the real figures, so just let's pretend. Go with me on this. Let's pretend that for every 100 believers in the world, there's one church leader or, or pastor, if you prefer that term. Now, there are an estimated 2 billion Christians in the world today. 2 billion. So if there, if, if there is one church leader for every 100 Christians... By my maths, and I hope they're not wrong, but go with me if they are. By my maths, that makes around 2%. So 2% of this theoretical sum are Christian leaders. 
And if we're stuck on our previous thinking that only full-time paid church leaders or pastors are the ones that can make a spiritual difference, we've got to ask, is this really God's plan? Is it God's plan to use only 2% of his church to help build his kingdom? Only to call 2% to redeem and restore this broken, fallen creation? What's the role of the 98%? What is their role in restoration the creation? Is it solely about financially underwriting the work of the 2%? <laughs> say yes. And let's be honest, if it wasn't for the generosity of everyone here and the amazing principle and practice of tithing, we wouldn't be able to do the things we do or involve ourselves in the things that others do, either right now or in the future. So those of you with real jobs, through the choice of your giving, you're able to help this church family get stuff done. And you help people get cared for. And you ultimately build and advance his kingdom in this city. It's real. Right now. Today. Without money, this would be incredibly difficult to do. Not impossible, because nothing's impossible with God. But it would be difficult. The church across the world would not be able to accomplish the things that it does without the giving collective heart of this theoretical 98%. But that question does come back into view. Is this all there is to do for this 98%? What about those folks here that choose to volunteer and serve this community? You know who you are. It's pretty much all of you. We couldn't do some of the things we do without that serving attitude coffee wouldn't be made the building wouldn't be clean the music would be off a CD would there be anyone to press play the life groups wouldn't be led visitors on a Sunday wouldn't know what to do or where to go our kids wouldn't be taught and that list could go on if there wasn't people who volunteered their time quite a few people as I said here give their time and energy over and beyond your work and your studies. And we couldn't function in the ways that we do without the volunteer time that you give. We just couldn't do it. But again, is that all there is? Where do this theoretical 98% spend most of their time? What about the 30, 40, 50 hours or more that Christ's followers spend in their vocation how is this connected to the restorative nature of God and what we've all been called to be a part of or is work vocation just a necessary evil so the big question can we be called and employed outside of a functional church context he's saying yes good 
The whole Restore series that we've been working through these last weeks is based upon a preaching series by a megachurch community in the States. And within the series, they get to today's topic and they share an idea of something called the seven cultural channels of influence. The seven cultural channels of influence. And they suggest that all of us fall into at least one of these channels. uh, And I want to share them with you today. So we've got the government channel. And this includes lawyers, judges, the whole judiciary, the, those who are part of the legislative process, those who are part of advocacy groups, and also the military. You've got the business channel, those who work in finance, marketing, public relations, small business owners, also those that work in retail, product development, technology, science, and medicine. You've got the education channel. Those that work in public schools and private schools, colleges and universities and other forms of education. And you've got the entertainment channel. This is the cool channel with cool people. The writers, the artists, the filmmakers, the performers. And as well as those that take part in sports. And you've got the media channel. And this is those that work in television, radio, publishing or internet-driven media. And you have the social channel. This is full of people that work in trusts or foundations, non-charitable, uh, uh, charitable and non-profit organisations. But this also includes mums and dads and those who work professionally with marriages and families. And then finally, we have the church channel. This 2%. These church leaders, parachurch leaders, evangelists, missionaries and all those kinds of people. And while you consider all these channels, it seems a a little odd that the church channel is often seen as the only way to join with God to accomplish his restorative mission. Rather than considering the church as a force for redemption and restoration that uses every channel of cultural influence. Are you with me so far? Think for a moment, which of these cultural channels would you consider yourself a part? Just, just for a few seconds, what would you consider yourself a part looking at those? And when you've done that, consider how you would connect with any of the other cultural channels. And now let me ask you to think for a moment about the gay pride movement. Now, why am I mentioning that? There is a connection. Think about how influential that movement is. Not just in this country, but in most Western civilizations. Think about how big that group of people appears, even though those of same-sex attraction only account for, in a lot of studies, between 1% and 2% of the population but they appear so big, so influential, so massive. I'm not asking you to celebrate this. What I'm wanting you to do is consider the following. The gay pride movement consists of people from many different walks of life, from many different cultural channels. Yet from across the Western world, these people have come together in various ways and means to put across what they would regard as a very successful, positive message. 
doctors, street cleaners, shop workers, lawyers, sports people, journalists, actors. That list could go on. Consider this. What, what if members of Christ's church across the board began to influence society at large through all the different cultural channels and not just try to push through change and garner influence through that small, limited cultural church channel. I'm, I've got to stress that I'm, not refer, I'm referring to the specific observed cultural channel and not the church as the body of Christ. The local church community, I would suggest, is the only group that meets regularly, every week, and is the only group that on the whole represents every one of these seven channels. I asked you earlier to consider which channel you belong to. So look around you. Look around you now. Come on, look around. Take in who's sat next to you. Take in those people around you. Have a look. If you're not turning, you're still looking at me. Have a look. Have a look. Look him in the eye. <laughs> Smile at one another. And a lot of you know the folks that you're sitting with. Uh, and think for a moment, think for a moment, the amazing variation in these cultural channels that you see before you that are sitting right next to you. Followers of Christ, cleverly disguised as doctors, shop workers, council employees, business owners, mums and dads, and even those that do work for the local church or parachurch organisation. All seven channels represented. Take another look. Just take another look. All seven channels. Now, I jokingly said that these are cleverly disguised. And what I mean by that is that the way that you do the, your job and the way that you live your life may not on the surface seem like it is connected to the church, but you have the potential to change the world, to redeem and restore this world that has been crushed by sin. The potential to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Matthew 5, Jesus describes the kind of influences that cleverly disguised followers of, Christ, uh, followers of Jesus are to have on the world. So let's read Matthew 13 onwards. And I'm going to read this from the message version. Let me tell you why you are here. You are to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavours of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You are here to bring light, bringing out the God colours in the world. God is not a secret to be kept we're going public with this. As public as a city on the hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lies by opening doors to others. You will prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. 
Now, I know that over the last few weeks, salt has been mentioned a few times, so I'm slightly in danger of laboring this point, but I think probably this is a point that needs laboring. So, we're reminded again and again of the importance of followers of Christ who are prepared to engage with the world. Or, as George put it, be with people. Let's think about the context in which Jesus talks about this salt seasoning. Back in the day when Jesus lived, there weren't any fridges or freezers, maybe a cold cave here and there. So salt was mainly used to preserve foods and to keep them from decaying and falling apart. It helped keep things together. And what about light? Well, Christ was talking about candles in people's houses. I think we forget how dark the night really is in our Western world. (laughs) You had a power cut last night, you know how dark it gets. Anyone who's been stuck in a power cut or somewhere remote and away from any cities can appreciate how dark it really gets, especially if the moon isn't anywhere near full. It gets dark. And in Jesus' time, there's no ambient light in people's houses, there's no TVs or computers, and there's no fridges, so that little light in the door is out. None of that. When darkness falls, it gets dark, and houses get dark. And these candles, these lamps, become the only source of light. So imagine covering these lights and the darkness that would surround you. You'd fall, you'd bump into things, you'd smash things. In fact, the safest thing to do would be to sit down and do nothing, not move a muscle. So when Christ is talking about salt and light, he's talking about two very important things with massive influence. When salt and light come up against things, they improve it. They bring with them positive outcomes. And Jesus calls each and every one of us to be salt and light to this world. You are to be that influence, that situation changer. You're to bring positive outcomes. Wherever wherever it is or whoever they are, they are to become better because of your presence. Your primary calling is to be salt, and light in every single one of these channels of influence that I put up earlier that you find yourself in. (coughs) When people who don't believe or may not have much time for things of faith and God, when they think of followers of Christ, the first thought that comes to their mind should be something like this. I don't get them, I don't understand them, but I love having them around because things are just better. When we pray on earth as it is in heaven, we need to recognize that we can be that conduit of change. And through all that we touch and all that we're involved in, all that we are vocationally a part of, it becomes simply better because we're bringing heaven to earth. And you may begin to ask yourself right now, you may begin to ask yourself these questions. We know this and we've heard it and we've read it ourselves what does that actually look like on the ground? What does it look like in my small business? 
What does it look like when I'm working in a coffee shop? What does it look like when I'm at home with my kids? What does it look like when I'm working in the bar late at night? What does it look like when I'm performing with others? What does it look like when I'm in a room full of rowdy students? And I want us to consider for a moment Zacchaeus from the Bible. Let's consider him. A tax collector that got rich from being less than honest and exploiting the poor and the oppressed. When Jesus came into Zacchaeus' life, everything transformed. He realizes that his business is based on self-centeredness, dishonesty, and lacking any kind of honorable integrity. Let's just read what happens after Jesus entered his house from Luke 19. Zacchaeus just stood there, a little stunned. He stammered apologetically, Master, I give away half my income to the poor, and if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. Jesus said, Today is salvation day in this home. Here he is, Zacchaeus, son of Abraham. Zacchaeus is absolutely transformed. Think about that verse. Think about what it actually says. He goes beyond biblical tithing of that 10%. Zacchaeus is saying 50% of everything that comes in, I'm just going to give it away. I'm not going to live on the 90%, I'm going to live on the 50%. And I'm not going to pay back damages of 20% plus whatever they're owed, like the word says I should. I'm going to give back four times the amount to anyone that I have ever cheated. And take a moment to think about how many people this cheating but extremely rich tax collector had robbed. The clue's there. He's rich. That must have been pretty much about everybody that he took taxes from. Zacchaeus has been transformed. He's been radical in his transformation. And Jesus declares that salvation has come to this house. Just, if you've got the verse open still, just look at what Jesus said about what's happened in this man's life. And all that's great, and all that's wonderful, and all that is amazing. But let's be careful not to miss a very noteworthy point of this story amongst all the amazing things that Zacchaeus declares. Zacchaeus does not stop being a tax collector. He doesn't suddenly drop everything and enter into full-time ministry. He continues to be a tax collector, but he becomes a radically different kind of tax collector. And you have to assume that when the other tax-collecting brothers start seeing one of their own acting in this weird and strange way, giving away so much more than he needed to, giving back to everyone he had ever cheated, and even simply collecting fair and reasonable taxes, they must have wondered what planet is he on. But more than that, you could assume that they would have been influenced by this. And let's not forget that he wasn't some ordinary tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He affected a whole region. So think about how many people that looked to him, connected with him, did business 
with him, how would they now be influenced by this wildly generous and transformed man? And think about the recipients of his generosity, the poor and the needy. Other than financial changes, how were these people now influenced by him? Think about those in the region that suddenly found themselves with more money in their pocket because they were paying fair and not exorbitant taxes. Finally, his household, his family, his friends. How much must they have been impacted positively by this radically transformed man? All this influence and impact because a man who simply collects taxes for a living had an amazing encounter with Jesus and was radically changed. And from then on, this man decides to function in a way that helps bring a degree of heaven to earth. All this from a man who collects taxes because he decided to be salt and light. You don't have to work for the local church or a Christian organization to change the world. Zacchaeus is a civil servant, someone who works for the inland revenue, if you like. But we're talking about him over 2,000 years later. He was someone who collected taxes but decides to do it fairly. And here we are today still telling his story. You can change the world by just deciding to step up to your calling and be salt and light right where you are in your vocation. Just by deciding today, right now, I'm going to be a restorer. I'm going to impact positively my channel of cultural influence. Be like Zacchaeus and do what you do with honesty, fairness, responsibility, integrity. All the things that the world needs. Be generous with the resources that God has entrusted to your care. Be compassionate with those who are hurting. Be the person in your family or work that people come to know because they know you are a compassionate person and they know you care. Make your department, your family, your business, your office cubicle, whatever scope of influence you have, size doesn't matter, God doesn't look at that. He looks at what you do with your influence. Make these places where you are salt and light. Make these places, these scopes of influence, somewhere where they're a little less broken and a little bit more like heaven. And in all this, make people aware, and this is important, in all this, make people aware that you are the way you are because of Jesus Christ. Because what he has done in your life. Don't hide that. Like Zacchaeus, you are the way you are because Jesus came into your house. You had an encounter. He showed up in your life. Jesus doesn't call Zacchaeus to stop being a tax collector. And if we think about it, this isn't unusual. Because we so often focus in on the twelve, we forget about the thousands of others he impacted that would have continued simply doing the jobs they were doing 
before they were radically transformed. They carried on doing these jobs differently and with greater influence because of what Jesus did in their lives through his teaching, his healings, his miracles and his ministry. Jesus called these people to remain in their vocation and to be salt and light to the world. Only a handful, only this 2% that I suggested earlier, he called to follow him, to leave what they were doing. To most of the rest, he said, I want you to follow me right where you are. After Zacchaeus met Jesus, he took the things he was good at, the things he was trained and skilled in, and used them to influence and to make a difference. So what is your call? What is your call? Maybe your call really is to join others on staff, as it were, in full-time vocational ministry. There are some wonderful testimonies of, of folks that have left whatever secular job they were doing and have made an amazing impact after choosing to work within the church channel, even if it cost them thousands of pounds a year in potential earnings that they would have earned if they'd have stayed out there in secular work. I'm going to end with this one sentence, but maybe that isn't your call. And he's called you to be Zacchaeus, to be a restorer, to be salt and light exactly where you are. Thank you, Jesus.